I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Acts chapter number 2. Acts chapter number 2. I assume that when you have a group of people like this together, that there are people who just sing the songs just because they're on the screens and, you know, you kind of got to do it. You don't really have a lot of choice. You, you fall into doing it. Um, but, you know, when you sing these songs about Christ and being redeemed and, and the worshiping God in song with your voice, with all your being, um, people who can really worship God are those people who've really been born again, who've come to know God in a personal way and know Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. No one worships like the redeemed. No one worships like the redeemed. And I can't help but wonder, probably, well, I don't wonder, I assume, fairly certainly, that there are people in this house of worship right now, that there are people in this room who are not really Christians. Not really Christians. And, um, you know, we could spend all day trying to talk you into it. But the thing that's going to make you a Christian is when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to what you really are and who Jesus really is and why you need him. Jesus uses these words in the New Testament where he describes, whosoever is athirst, let him come to me. Thirsty. You ever get thirsty for a glass of fresh water? Boy, it's good. Remember that old country song? Dan, can you see that big green tree where the water's running free and it's waiting there for who? You and me. (laughs) The living water of Christ. The Holy Spirit can make you thirsty. The Holy Spirit can make you hunger. Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Only the Holy Spirit can create that in you. And I pray, and I think every Christian here this morning will be praying, that that would happen to you, that you would hunger and thirst for the salvation that's only found in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, I want to give you a sermon this morning about the second most important institution to us, I think, and that's the Christian church, the church. Now, I've been going to church my whole life. My father was ordained in 1978, and so I've been going to church every Sunday my whole life. And Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, camp meeting, prayer meeting. (laughs) I've been going to church so much that I probably could miss a year and still have good attendance. (laughs) And since I've been going to church my whole life, I know some things about the local church. And I know these two things to be true. That the church, like the home, can be a source of great joy It can also be a source of intense pain. A local church, a church just like ours. It can be a place that can make you really happy or really sad. And my experience has almost always been from the pastoral side of it because my father was a pastor, and I saw my dad get treated really badly by churches sometimes, really badly. And then uh, I myself, as a pastor, have been treated both good and bad by churches. And uh, it's, just, it's just kind of the way it goes, the way it goes. You can't make everybody happy all the time, can you? Well, the answer is no. <laughs> but you, you, you we're trying, and, and the reason for the, the pain that's caused in the local church is because we're all sinners, we're all trying to do life in church together, 
And then you have Satan, that old instigator who wants to divide the fellowship, wants to break up a local church. And so a church can be a wonderful place and it can be a painful place. But just because a local church can cause you pain doesn't invalidate the church or devalue it any more than having bad times in your marriage devalues or makes marriage unimportant. The pain is something that is a part of relationships. Now, in fact, because a church can cause you both pain and joy, that may mean that the church, like the home, is a very, very important thing or place. So let's talk about these few things. Now let's make a short prayer together, and then I'll give you these three, three points, and then we'll sing a song and go fishing. Father, we thank you for this time. Now I pray you bless these words to our hearts. And I know what I got written down here to say, and I pray, dear Father, that you would help me to be smart enough to say it the right way. And I pray that you give me the help of the Holy Spirit to do so. I pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Let's start, first of all, with what is a church? What is a Christian church? Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Acts chapter 2, and I want you to look at verse 30, let's see here, verse 36, verse 36. Listen to what God's Word says. Therefore, let all Israel, this is Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he's coming to the end of his sermon, which is everybody's favorite part, right? Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So here we have it. This is the, for all practical intents and purposes, the beginning of the Christian church, right here in Acts chapter 2. Now, we know from early on in Acts chapter 2, there are about 18 different ethnicities or nationalities gathered here, and they've all come to, to Jerusalem to hear the gospel priests. These are all Jews from various parts of the world, and they've come there to, to celebrate the, the Passover to celebrate Pentecost now. And now this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit has taken place and the Apostle Peter stands up and preaches the gospel. He condemns them and then he delivers them by the message of the cross. Now verse 37, the local church is this. The local church is a group of people who have first 
heard the gospel. That's verse 37. When the people heard this, they heard the gospel. A local church is not just people who've heard the gospel, but they are, verse 41, they are people who have accepted it or believed it and have been baptized after they have put their faith in Christ, baptized. And the local church is also, verse 42, a group of people who have devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, which I take as communion, They have devoted themselves. Now, in those two words, devoted themselves, there are some implications. One is that they devoted themselves of their own free will. They freely chose to do this. No one coerced them or forced them into it. They were cognizant. They were thinking people. They made a choice to follow Christ, and they decided to devote themselves. Some translations say they committed themselves. I think the authorized version may say they continued steadfastly in these things. This is what a local church is in its simplest form. It's a group of people who have passed from death unto life, who've come to know Christ, and they've followed him in baptism, and then they decide to stay together. They decide to stay together, to to learn together, to grow together, to pray together, to break bread together. You also see here in this passage that they decided to help each other out. One of my friends, close friend of mine, he says that when they started selling their property and giving it away to other people in the church, he said that that was one of their biggest mistakes that they made. Which I think is an interesting thing because later on the church at Jerusalem is impoverished. And they have to take up free will offerings and send them back from the Gentile churches back to the church of Jerusalem. He says this is, this is a point where they got carried away in their, in their zealous love for one another by eliminating all their property, which I think is a thing we're thinking about myself. It's an interesting observation. But these people were committed to each other, helping each other, caring for one another. This is what a local church is in its very simple form. People who have been saved and baptized and who have decided to live together in a community, in a fellowship, in a church. Now, does everybody know what a church is now? If somebody says, what's a church? Where are you going to turn? Acts 2, the last, last quarter of the chapter, read it to them. There you go. That's what a church is. Now, here's the question you run into when you talk to a lot of people is, why are there so many churches? Why are there so many different kinds of churches? Now, I've been a Baptist my whole life, Baptist born, Baptist bred. When I die, I'll be Baptist what? Dead. (laughs) Just like all the other Baptists. (laughs) You guys hear about the, uh, you you know why Baptists don't, uh, you know why Baptists have to hire charismatics to change their light bulbs? Baptists don't raise their hands in church. see what was I talking about (laughs) there's so many different kinds of churches what's going on well in Acts chapter 2 it's ground zero ground zero for the local church and for the next 300 years Christianity is blossoming here from the church of Jerusalem 300 years Christianity like a wisteria vine going along a wood fence just taking over everything just creeping everywhere it can. 
Like bamboo. You guys ever plant bamboo and it just gets away from you? Foosh! Takes over everything. Christianity just spreads everywhere. To every nook and cranny of the Roman Empire, Christianity just spreads for the next 300 years in spite of intense persecution. I mean horrible persecutions. In spite of of factionalism and dissension within Christianity, that still grows for 300 years and eventually Christianity overwhelms the Roman Empire. And in about 313 to 330 A.D., the 4th century, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. The official religion of the Roman Empire. In 300 years, from a small group of people led by one guy, Jesus Christ, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, the church overwhelms Europe and North Africa. My friends, at one point, North Africa was the... Was the was the, what's the, what do you guys think of the religious center of America being? I started to say Nashville, Tennessee, because that's where the Southern Baptist Publishing House is at. But where do you, what would you guys say it is? The center, Grand Rapids? So Christianity is the, North Africa was the Grand Rapids of Christianity. Just Christianity is in a big way there. By the early part of the 4th century, Christianity is the, major, is the dominant religion, and they make it the state religion. And when Christianity became the state religion, when that happened, the church nearly immediately starts to corrupt in incredible ways. And in nearly every place, in every facet of Christianity, of Christian teaching, that church that is blended with the state apostatizes and almost ceases to be Christian completely. David Gay, in his book, The Battle for the Church, he says that if God had not written down what a church was in the Bible, that there would be no Christian church on the earth because that's how corrupt the church became. And then for the next 1,000 years, from 300 A.D. to about 1300 A.D., you have a time of darkness a time of spiritual darkness because the Christian church had become so corrupted that it was, there was no longer a gospel light in the world. And this happened because that Christian church, universal church now in a big sense, Christian churches, because they drifted from the Scriptures and began to use coercion to expand the church, and coercion in that time period meant either convert to Christianity or be killed. Now, there's another religious group that says that very same thing today. It's Islam. They believe in a sacral state. That if you live on our patch of soil, you've got to follow our religion. Now, we've got to keep in mind, where do they get that idea from? They actually get it from the Bible, from the Old Testament. Because there was a church before the New Testament church. There was a church in the Old Testament, Israel. And Israel was a church and state, a theocratic kingdom. If you were going to live in Israel, you had to worship the way the Israelites worshipped. No idolatry was allowed. There was only one religion allowed by the state and by law, and that was Judaism. But then when the Christian era enters in, Jesus Christ leads us in a new direction where we have freedom. We don't coerce people. There's no legal mandate to become a Christian. It's a a whole different thing. Jesus says about his own kingdom, he says, My kingdom is not of this world, because if it were of this world, then would my servants fight. 
It's not a kingdom built with a sword of steel. It's a kingdom built with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So over that 1,000 years, there's great darkness. And I don't mean to say that there were no true Christians or no true Christian churches on the earth. I don't mean to say that. There were pockets of people in various regions of the world who were keeping to the apostolic faith, who were trying to continue on preaching the true, pure gospel. Little pockets of people. But finally, in the 1300s, the Reformation period begins to start. It begins to start through the work primarily we would think of people like John Wycliffe, who was a a British Catholic priest. Let me say it again. A British Catholic priest who realized that the common man, that the people of Great Britain, which wasn't really Great Britain back in those days, but the people of the British island, that they needed to know the Scriptures. Because the Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 130, the entrance of thy words give light. And the people which said in darkness, Isaiah chapter 9, need great light. And so he worked to get the Bible from Latin into English. Of course, in the 1300s, as before the printing press, so all copies of Scripture had to be hand-copied. Hand-copied. You ever had to copy down a page out of a book as punishment? You ever had to write, I will say yes, ma'am, on the blackboard a hundred times? <laughs> I might have had to do that <laughs> at some point. Or write a page of sentences, I will not hit my brother. <laughs> they copied out the New Testament in English and parts of the Old Testament. And then because of that dark time period, Education was something reserved only for the leaders. The people in the villages, if they had a Bible in English, they couldn't even read it. And so Wycliffe sent out men called Lollards to take the New Testament into villages and to read the Scriptures. And people would come out not to hear a sermon. They would come out just to hear the Scripture read to them. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy to to Timothy, he says, give attendance to the public reading of Scripture. The public reading of Scripture. I wonder how, if we were just going to read Scripture, would you come out just to hear Scripture read? Well, the reason why you wouldn't come out to hear Scripture read, the same reason I wouldn't come out to hear Scripture read, is because I can read Scripture on my own, in my own house, in my own chair. But these people didn't know anything. They couldn't read or write. They didn't know their ABDs and their 124s. They were ignorant. But Wycliffe's men came and read the Bible to them. And for that, the ecclesiastical power persecuted them, hunted them down, killed them, burned them at the stake, cut off their heads. And any time a Wycliffe Bible was found, they burned it. But Wycliffe just kept on and kept on. Wycliffe is usually called the morning star of the Reformation period. But over the next 200 years, from 1300 to about 1500, this kind of thing started a fire. And by the 1500s, a big fire hits Europe. And we know it as the Protestant Reformation. And here is why there are so many different kinds of churches. Is as people are getting the Bible in their hands... They're realizing that the ecclesiastical thing they'd been a part of, the Roman Catholic Church, they're seeing its errors 
and they're trying to untangle themselves from it. Have you ever gotten all tangled up in something? And you're just trying to get out of it, trying to figure out the right way through? You guys ever go fishing? You ever get a bird nest in your fishing reel? And try to straighten that thing out? I was fly fishing on the Pigeon River this week. I was fishing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. No, I wasn't. (laughs) I went fishing one day. (laughs) I was fly fishing, and I was casting back, and I forgot there was a stupid tree behind me, and it hit that tree and got all tangled up in it. Then when I got it out of the tree, I finally was able to to get get it down out of the tree. And when that lion came back, my leader got all tangled up. And I only had one leader with me because I left my other one in the car. I would have just cut it off and put a new one on. But there I am trying to, got my glasses like this, standing in a river, trying to get that thing all pulled apart. And I'm really glad that we're once saved, always saved. Because <laughs> I was pretty hot. But it was so hard to get it all untangled. And by the time I got it all untangled, I thought, Yes! I go back to casting, I catch a little trout, and then I'm changing my flies later on, and I thought I got all the knots out of my leader. But as I tied that fly on, I ran my fingers up the string, and guess what I felt? A knot. A little bitty knot. A little bitty, frustrating, annoying knot. You know what I did? I left it. (laughs) You see, the, these, these Christians who were getting the Bible for the first time, they'd been in darkness, and they're all tangled up in Roman Catholicism, and they're trying to find their way out of it. They're trying to see, okay, what's true and what's false, because there's a lot of things in Roman Catholicism that are true scriptural teachings. True scriptural teachings. They're trying to figure out what's true and what's false, trying to learn to, to use the Bible themselves. And as they were trying to find their way out, they begin to establish different kinds of churches. When people are free to follow the Scripture and to interpret the Scripture for themselves, they're going to have different kinds of churches of all different variants. All different variants. Some churches are still very Catholic. Some churches are not even... Some churches don't resemble churches at all. It's very... Very... Non-standard, I guess you would say, very casual. What these people were doing was they were trying to get untangled from it. And that's the result of there being a lot of religious groups. And then at the same time, in this time of uncertainty and trying to find their way out of the darkness, there's also Satan who is at work. And Satan always wants to mess up God's stuff. He always wants to corrupt and pollute the church. And there's a lot of things about Christian churches that are different, right? But there's one thing that every Christian church needs to be sure it gets right. It's more important than your ecclesiology. It's more important than your harmatology. It's more important than your eschatology. The one thing you've got to get right with no messing around is soteriology. The doctrine of salvation. You've got to get the gospel right. You've got to get the good news right. You've got to get that right. Any perversion of the gospel is satanic. Any perversion of the gospel is satanic. 
I want to prove it to you. Take your copy of God's Word. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. And I'm saying this to you because I'm not trying to make everybody a Baptist or to believe the way I believe about, about the church. Or we're not, we're not, and really, that's not the aim of our church. We want people to know they're going to go to heaven when they die. There's only one life-saving message. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Galatia who was starting to drift. Galatians 1.6 I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really... No gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, So now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. In plain terms, this would be Paul saying, let them be damned. Let them be damned. That's tough, tough talk. Verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Paul says, who am I trying to serve here? Am I trying to make everybody on the the earth happy? Am I supposed to water down the gospel just so I can make all these human beings happy? Paul says, I'm not the servant of human beings. I'm the servant of God. And when when, when you proclaim a false gospel, you are misrepresenting God. How many of you like to be misquoted? Do you like to be misquoted? No, you don't. Neither does God. And Paul says, if you try to to preach a different kind of gospel, if you do preach a different gospel, you're accursed. You're out. Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please these people, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is big talk. It's important. Now, my friends, we are a part of the Reformation movement. Not to brag too much about it, okay? But some historians, both Baptist and non-Baptist, call Baptist churches the most thorough of reformers. Because the Baptist people, Baptistic people, Christian, whatever kind of term you want to use, They didn't stop with just reforming their views of salvation to align with Scripture. They've left no position unmeasured by Scripture. Even their ecclesiology, what a church looks like. What a church looks like. Now, the third point. Is FBC the perfect church? That's Faith Baptist Church, in case you didn't know. Faith Baptist Church. Is Faith Baptist Church the perfect church? What's the answer? (laughs) <laughs> there were yeses and noes. 
Well, the answer is no, we're not perfect. Hang around here and you'll see that we do have our issues. <laughs> like all families, like all communities, we have our little quirks, don't we? We have our problems. We have things we wish we could change, things we just have to tolerate. Every family has a crazy uncle, right? Every family has grandpa who lives in the past. <laughs> Every family has a young kid who wants to burn the world down sometimes. But what we are here, we're not a perfect church, but we are trying to follow a perfect master. We're trying to follow Christ more perfectly. And our ambition here is we want to be a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. A glorious church. A church that honors Christ. A church that's committed to the gospel with all its might. A church that wants to worship Him for His gloriousness. We're trying to obey the perfect book. We're trying to follow God's Word more perfectly. My friends, have you ever changed a theological position because of something you read in Scripture? Have you held an opinion about something and then find that your opinion was at odds with God's Word then had to change your opinion? Well, that's all of us. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to become more scriptural, more aligned with Scripture. And we are here in this church preaching a perfect message. We're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're proclaiming loud and clear, without qualification, without equivocation, that Jesus Christ died for sinners so they could be redeemed and brought into the heavenly realm. We say that Jesus Christ did really, truly, honestly rise from the dead to prove that he paid the full price and that Christ our Lord has ascended to heaven where he is the only mediator, the only mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And we're proclaiming that Jesus has us here today in this city, in this county, to tell the world to tell our friends and neighbors that whosoever will may come to Christ. This is what a, a local church is doing. Now jump back to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Remember that early picture of the church. There are people who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. They were a local, visible assembly of people known to one another who committed themselves. They devoted themselves. Are you devoted to anything? Not summertime. And we're all going to be devoted to lots of stuff, aren't we? We're going to go fishing. We're going to go out on the lake and all kinds of stuff. We're going to be devoted. If you're like me, you've been devoted to losing weight for years. I've lost 100 pounds. The same five 20 times. <laughs> Devoted to something. These people are devoted to the church, to this early fellowship of believers. Devoted, committed, continuing in. Now here in this house of worship right now, we have, we have people who are formal members and people who are, we call them informal members or frequent attenders. To all of you who are not formal members of Faith Baptist Church, I want to say this to you. We want you to join the church. We want you to join formally and officially. Devote yourself to this fellowship. Devote yourself. 
I'll give you two reasons. Ready? Number one is you need it. You need, you need to be committed, devoted to this fellowship. You need it. You need it because you need us. <laughs> you need our gifts. You need us to minister to you. Everything that we've done here today, we could only do because somebody in the past committed or devoted themselves to a local fellowship. You guys got a copy of God's Word? Or got one of those ratty old iPads? (laughs) That wouldn't exist. You wouldn't have a copy of God's Word if it wasn't for a local church. In English. Real Christians in real churches translating the Bible. Copying the Bible. Dying to give you the Bible. All these songs we sang today are all the product of somebody who's a member of a church writing down words on paper and putting words with music so we could worship God. People who are committed, devoted to a local fellowship. We've enjoyed all their gifts. You need the gifts of the church. The church is a body put together by Christ. We all have different gifts. In Corinthians, it's, I think it's kind of funny, in Corinthians it says that everybody has its glorious parts and its inglorious parts. <laughs> Every church has got some elbows and knuckleheads (laughs) and feet and heart and ears. You need the gifts of the church. Secondly, is this church, this fellowship needs you. We need you. We need your gifts. We need your perspective. We need you. We need you. We can benefit from you being a part of this church. We need you. We need you. We need each other. And so can I have that without being a formerly a member of the church? I'm just going to say, I'm not sure. If you can have all of that. But this church, we need, we need you. Devoted. Devoted. I guess we could say it like this. I gotta say this carefully. I guess we could say it like this. A man and woman can live together in a house and have kids without being married, can't they? They can. Well, what what really gives stability to that? What gives some permanence to that? What causes you to start gaining weight? Getting married. Because <laughs> you just relax. You have this relationship. You know, me and Matt were driving to school the other day. What was that, what was that song, Matt? I'm never going to let you go. I'm never going to let you down. I'm never going to... No. Oh, I can't remember the words. I'm never going to desert you. You guys know that song? That's what, a, that's what a, a marriage is, a commitment to each other and all the gifts and benefits thereof. And a church is the same way. The commitment is important. Committed to the local church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. I think it's striking here in verse 46. 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. That's public worship. They broke bread in their homes. This kind of sounds like small groups, doesn't it? Ate together with glad and sincere hearts. This is a, I'm going to preach another message about the church next Sunday. This is what a church is. A group of people who have devoted themselves to one another to serve Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this time to be together with my friends. And I pray, Lord, that you would save the sinners. And I pray, Lord, you'd stir the hearts of people to, to devote themselves to this local fellowship. And Father, it's such a wonderful thing to be a part of a church. And Lord, let us, let us all make it our purpose to make it as wonderful as possible for the glory of Christ and the honor of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.